0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Danny Wilbur was wrongly convicted of murder in 2005. After nearly 18 years in prison, Wilbur was exonerated and walked free. His journey to freedom was far from easy. He studied the law, filed mountains of legal documents, and spent years waiting for the legal process to play out. Wilbur is a citizen of the United Nation of Wisconsin. We'll talk with him and his partner about what it took to earn his freedom and how they maintain their resilience. That's coming up right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A First Nation in Canada is grieving the loss of a young community member after police confirmed the body of a five-year-old boy who went missing in April was found over the weekend. The CBC reports Frank Young was playing outside when he was last seen on the Red Earth Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. Police say he was found Saturday in a river not far from where he went missing. They do not suspect foul play. Police and volunteers had conducted searches on land, air, and boat around the community and the surrounding area. Tributes and condolences are pouring in on social media for the family and community. Red Earth Cree Nation Chief Fabian Head thanked people for their support during their time of grief. The First Nation and police are expected to hold a press conference Tuesday as the investigation continues. The Shinnecock Nation in New York and the Tilt Holdings Company broke ground Monday on construction of a cannabis dispensary located on Shinnecock Territory in Southampton. A ceremony was held at the future side of the Little Beach Harvest, a 5,000-square-foot dispensary. The tribal cannabis operation is a result of a partnership between the tribe and the company after six years of lobbying, development, and planning. Construction is expected to be completed by early 2023, and there are plans for future wellness and consumption. The Shinnecock Nation is a federally recognized tribe located on its ancestral territory on Long Island. Tilt is a global provider of cannabis business solutions, including cultivation, manufacturing, processing, and brand development. A fourth California condor will be attempted to be released Tuesday into Yorok Ancestral Territory in Redwood National Park. The Yorok tribe, in collaboration with the National and State Parks, started releasing three condors in May. The restoration effort began in 2008. The release of condors is in an area where the endangered birds have been absent for more than a century. For the tribe, the recovery of the species is part of restoration of the ecosystem and the people responsible for taking care of it. The condor plays a principal role in the tribe's creation Story and is prominently featured in traditional dances. In a video message in May, Tribal Council member Sherry Provault shared the significance of the reintroduction and what it means for future generations.
2: We know why they left. Logging and environmental destruction occurred, and um, we lost them in, our, in my lifetime. And my, my children now, um, they're adults, and then my grandchildren It'll be exciting to know that this will always be in their life. They will always see this bird. And it is our responsibility to make sure that it has a home, that it's safe, and that it can thrive. It's, it's just amazing to think about what we're doing as a community and as a people to bring back our traditions, our cultural knowledge, there's yet so much to do.
1: The condor has to voluntarily enter a designated staging area with access to the outside world. Plans for reintroduction are one cohort of condors every year for at least the next two decades. The Native American Heritage Fund recently announced awards for six projects in Michigan communities to help replace Indian mascots in public schools. Nearly $480,000 will support community projects, academic program updates, mascot changes, and other projects that honor Native Americans. Board Chair Jamie Stuck says funding the decommission of racist mascot imagery now will leave more money in the future for proactive programs and curriculum. The awards will be distributed in August. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation,
2: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Institute of American Indian Arts presents the virtual holiday marketplace now through the new year. A variety of items from the IAIA community are now available for purchase at iaia.edu marketplace who support this show. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com tribalrelations tribal relations.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. For 18 years, Danny Wilbur, a citizen of the United Nation of Wisconsin, educated himself on the U.S. criminal justice system and filed piles of legal documents all while behind bars. In 2004, he was charged with murder. He was convicted in 2005 after a trial in which the judge ordered him shackled during closing arguments. After filing his own legal briefs and getting additional outside legal help, he eventually won an appeal and was exonerated last May. Today on our show, we'll speak with Danny Wilbur and his partner, Lacey Kinnart, about Danny's journey to freedom. We also want to hear from you. Do you have questions for Danny about his struggle to get to the truth? Join our conversations with comments or questions. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Danny Wilbur. He is an exoneree and activist. He is a citizen of the United Nation of Wisconsin who now lives in Escanaba, Michigan. Danny, welcome, and thanks for coming on the show today.
3: Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me.
0: Joining Danny in Escanaba is Lacey Kennard. She is a program and operations coordinator at the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, and Danny's partner. She's an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians. Lacey, great to have you on the show as well.
4: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'd like to start with Danny, and Danny, we're going to hear more about the process that led up to your release and this just absolutely amazing story. But I want you to start by going back to the moment you realized you'd won your case and you knew you would be exonerated after spending almost 20 years of your life behind bars. What was that feeling like?
3: Uh, If I had to describe it in one word, man, it would be... uh... It was it was surreal. It was it was it was it was surreal, man. It was it
2: was it was it was it was
3: surreal. Yeah, it, I, was, it was unbelievable. It was emo- it was a lot of things, but surreal is like the first thing that comes to mind because it, it just felt. It, initially, it didn't feel real because of all the anticipation and everything that went into getting to that point. You know what I mean?
0: yeah i i mean I think so <laughs> I think so i i I don't think I really can just because I can't fathom what that would be like, but I can certainly relate to the intensity of the emotion that you're describing, and I think it's hard for a lot of people to fully understand what that would be like when a person who's wrongfully convicted such as yourself spent eighteen years in prison, you walk free past those prison doors uh again, I just you know how do you put that into words, Danny oh
3: uh, well, I mean, I, I guess I can never really articulate it to, I mean, so that it really, I can really express how I felt in words, but um, a lot of times when, when people get in tune with this situation or they're just in tune with the facts or they have some type of involvement in this case, uh, uh, their first reaction is, man, I couldn't even imagine, you know, just, you know, just the struggles, the emotions, just, just, just all the spirit, all the energy, all the thoughts, Just it's just a lot of. It's just a lot of you put into these type of situations, and just as much as you're putting into it you you are up against a system so to speak that has unlimited resources and their job their primary objective is to make sure you stay in prison whether or not you can prove you're innocent or whether or not you can prove that you're you're not responsible for what they're accusing you of or what you're sitting in prison for or what you've been convicted of so uh it just it, it's it's a lot, man. I could never put into words fully, exactly, and explain to you or or or, or get you to understand with words. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's still hard for me to articulate or really express the way I feel or the way I felt when I walked out them doors when I finally got some relief, and or even when a judge finally actually looked at the facts and applied the law to the facts and was and had enough courage. You know what I mean? And enough decency about himself, even though he was in that in that position of power where he could have just did what everybody else was doing at that point and just lying and denying. He actually looked at the facts. He took the facts into consideration. He applied the law to him and and, and it showed, you know, that the case wasn't overwhelming. It was evidence that existed that proved my innocence. And once he did that, once we got that from a federal judge, that's pretty much when the floodgates open and people start really start you know paying attention to the facts and the physical evidence and the things that we discovered post-conviction. Okay. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. And let's talk more about that when, when your case began attracting attention because I'd be interested to know I mean, what was that like uh, going from being incarcerated, you're disconnected from the outside world, and then here all of a sudden now you're talking to reporters, you're appearing in public on shows like this. I mean that must be just a whole nother layer of of something that you have to deal with and have to adjust to as well
3: yeah yeah absolutely uh you know all this is new to me man you know i've been in talks with a lot of people um yeah i've done i've conducted you know interviews and you know it's 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 been a lot going on but it really got traction I, i i would have to say in 2015 um we were actually in talks with the Milwaukee county district attorney uh, uh, uh supposedly he was reviewing the facts of the case, and then all of a sudden he had a check. Mm-hmm. stuff mm mm-hmm. started and we started getting traction. the facts were out there it was people that was actually interested in the case, and you know we we were we were trying to generate funds so that we can get a lawyer, a good lawyer that would actually represent the case uh uh you know competently and effectively you know, and get the facts out there. So, uh, 15, I would say 15 is when we really got a lot of momentum and 16 is when we were able to, uh, get the best appellate lawyer in the state of Wisconsin. His name is Robert Hennick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we, yeah, after that, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot going on. We had, you know, we had experts, uh, we had, uh, witnesses popping up, we had new witnesses coming, you know, uh, coming, you know, coming up and, and, and they were there and they were telling their side of the story. We, which was also supporting the physical evidence and also supporting the fact that I wasn't the one. So it was, it was, it was a lot going on. So between 2015 and then when I ended up getting out, you know, December 22nd of 2021. So it took six, you know, about, you know, a little over six years. Once the facts were really out there, and we really started, you know, gaining some momentum.
0: And in that, that, that initial 10 year period before 2015 when things started turning your way, you were convicted in 2005 so there was like a 10 year time frame there when, when when you were it was tough. I mean you, you didn't have um, you know didn't you were in a situation where you didn't know how this was going to wind up. there was a possibility you could have spent the whole your whole life behind bars. were there times uh, during that, those early years that you thought about giving up do you, do you remember like your worst day in prison?
3: Uh, yeah. Well, I remember worse years in prison. You know what I'm saying? I remember, you know, it go, you know you can have, you know, you, you tell a guy you have a bad day in prison. It's like, oh yeah, tell me more. You know what I'm saying? You, you know, I've had bad, bad years in prison to the point where nothing was going right. Nobody was around. I had no money. I had no, nobody to call, but I always had my spirit. You know what I mean? And I knew what it was going to take to clear my name. I had a vision already. So I just had to work towards that vision. So even when things were slow, even when when nothing going on, even when everybody took that life sentence as if I was going to do that whole life sentence, you know, a lot of people come and go, you know, a lot of people, you know, they may love you, but they'll love you from a distance at that point, because you got a life sentence now. So, you know, you know, a lot of people think like, you may never get out of prison again, you know what I mean? So, you know, and, and sometimes that's all it takes for people to become distant or to become strangers or to, you know, whatever. So yeah, I've had, I've had bad years in prison, but one thing, I've, already, I, I've, already, I've always relied on my spirit, man. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and my resiliency, and you know, I, you know just g- genetically speaking, man, just coming from where I come from and my ancestors and the struggle they've had with this system, with these people and the things that go on in this country with indigenous people, I've always relied on my spirit and my resiliency. You know, those people used to love telling me I would never see the streets again. Those people used to love telling me I would die in prison. Those people used to love telling me I used to be a tough guy, but I'm tough no more. You know what I mean? But the good thing for me, the fact that I had the spirit I got and my resiliency, I was able to turn that into motivation. I was able to turn that into fuel and keep fighting and going harder off that. That made me want to fight more. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I can certainly relate. Danny, let's let's talk more about your trial and your legal case and um you were convicted, uh, charged and convicted of murder. And um, to tell us more, the evidence. Uh, what was it that you think convinced the jury to convict you back in 2005?
3: Uh, okay, so the the incident occurred at an after hours. After hours are basically where people go when they leave like a club or something. You know, it'd be like a spot or, or like a house or like another uh, another bar or something that's, that's just basically is being occupied after hours where people are still selling drinks. So the answer, it, was, it was two different crimes that was occurring at this house at the same time. One was a fight that was going on. And how this fight was going on, another uh, that had nothing to do with the fight who happened to be the owner of the house or happened to be the person whose house it was he wasn't involved in a fight or nothing, but he ended up getting shot. Now, this was in a different room of the house. Involved in the fight.
0: A different so room they, from where you were, Danny? Is that what you're saying?
3: Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So it, it was something going on in another room in the house that didn't concern me or didn't involve me or didn't involve the fight or none of that. Whatever incident no, was, I still don't know to this day. But what they was when they came to the crime scene, being that, I've had a history with this particular police department, and they pretty much knew who I was because these are the same cops that has been in my neighborhood for 10 years at this point. So they knew who I was and I was involved in the streets and things of that nature. But what they did was once they heard my name, they associated the shooting and with the fighting. And then all of a sudden it was just about me because I was made out to be the aggressor in the fight. So what they did was they took all the stuff that people are saying about me being involved in the fight, and they pretty much just linked that with this man getting shot in the head. Then what they did was they started focusing the investigation on making me look bad and trying to get people to say certain things about me that was incriminating. Or did you see, for an example, they'll say, "Um, do you know who Danny, do you know who Danny Wilbur is? What do you call him? Yes. Did you see him engaging? Yeah, i seen him fighting.
0: Danny, we're so going to talk. we got to take a break right now, but we're going to talk more uh, about this case and, and what you went through. We'll get more details on what occurred that night in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, give us a call, listeners, if you, you want to join this conversation. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. Back after break. Self-Determination, The Bolt Decision, Redbone, and Billy Jack. We're taking a look back at the pivotal political and pop cultural moments that made a mark on Native America in the 1970s. What are the key memories you have of the decade? We'll find out on the next Native America Calling.
2: Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com.
0: We're speaking with Danny Wilbur today about his experience of being imprisoned for 18 years. He eventually won his freedom through legal appeals. We also want to hear from you, our listeners. Do you know someone that is in prison trying to appeal their case? Give us a call, 1 800 996 2848. Danny, before break, you were describing to us uh, the crime that occurred there in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, you were at an after party. There were a lot of people. There was drinking. Somebody got shot in a room that you weren't even in. The police show up. Uh, Danny, is it safe to say that you'd been in a little bit of trouble in the past, and the police knew that and, and pointed a finger at you right off the bat?
3: Yes, yes, that's absolutely safe to say. That's actually what occurred.
0: Okay, so um, so goes to you get charged and and you go to trial. And could you tell during the trial that that things weren't going your way and it it was looking like you were going to be convicted?
3: uh well yeah i mean obviously i didn't the feelings what yeah it felt you know it felt bad being on trial you know especially knowing i didn't do it so yeah you know that yeah it was bad it was terrible um as far as you know how the trial was proceeding um i wasn't really pivy to uh the law at that point or you know uh certain procedures that are supposed to happen or certain things that the da is supposed to do or my lawyer is supposed to do at that point so i was pretty much in you know, in the middle of nowhere, just hoping and praying that you know these people would see that I didn't do it. You know.
0: Okay. And then, how long after you were sentenced before you you started working on behalf of your own legal case, and and what all did that entail?
3: Well, I had. Well, I was actually. I started working immediately. So the, the good thing for me is, uh, well, one of the one one of the miracles that happened is I actually ran into a guy that was that was real versed in the law. And um, we just happened to start talking, and he just started giving me material to read, you know, once I explained my okay. situation. To I'm well, sorry, Dan, was was
0: this, was this a fellow inmate that was well-versed in the yeah. law? Okay.
3: Yeah, this was this was a person that was, you know, he's been incarcerated. At this point, he was already incarcerated almost 20 years. So, and he's been litigating, you know, he probably was litigating 10, 15 years of that. So he was he was well-versed in the law, at least enough to be able to you know, guide me in the right direction and, and tell me what I needed to digest as far as uh, what what statutes and what laws and and, and, and and what case law I need to familiarize myself with to be able to know exactly what's going on at the point I was in once I was convicted. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, you started beginning working with people on the outside, and, and, and that's how you met Lacey, right? So tell us about that.
3: Okay, so... Um, you know, once I became involved, like to the point where I knew um like like I knew my way as far as how to, you know, research law and interpret law and write it and, and things of that nature, like I can draft it up. So once so then I started looking for, you know, investigators and forensic pathologists and, 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 and crime scene experts and people that can actually help me, um recreate the crime scene or recreate the crime scene diagrams or uh uh analyze uh the, the physical evidence and, and, and give an expert opinion on it you know what i mean to a medical degree of uh, uh, to a to a to a medical degree of certainty and so i started writing out all these letters to people and um although i wasn't getting a lot of responses some people did respond to me in fact uh uh, one of the experts that responded to me, her name is uh, Dr. Lindsay Thomas, and she actually, she's like a real renowned expert in the country. And she even said in one of the articles, they, they interviewed her, like, I was the only letter that she actually responded to like that because I was actually working pro se. I didn't have a lawyer at that time. So at this particular time, a lot of, a lot of people that, that was in this field, they never even responded to pro se litigants. You know, they, a lot of times pro se litigants are just not taken serious. So uh, yeah, I was just writing letters, man, and just you know uh, I would get responses from people, and um, I would see if they would be willing to uh, you know put some work in on my case or analyze some evidence in my case or draft up a you know draft up a affidavit for me that supports this or supports that. And pretty soon I looked up, I had quite a few things in front of me that that not only supported my innocence but it proved everything um, that the state wasn't trying to acknowledge.
0: Okay, and. and- Danny, tell us about that evidence, specifically that turned things around for you. What was it exactly and why wasn't it included in the original trial?
3: Well, it was actually included in the original trial, but my trial attorney, um, he didn't do his own due diligence, so a lot of things that he was relying on as far as what the physical evidence spoke to, is instead of him um, emphasizing it and putting a, and, and illuminating it because it actually proved my innocence, he would just sit back and let the state theorize it and put their own spin on it and put their own narrative on it. And, you know, you know, the the jury pretty much, you know, you know, obviously, you know, you know, they, they took that for the truth or they took that, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't know exactly how they found this evidence to be compelling to convict me because it was actually evidence that proved my innocence, but it was just bits and pieces of things. It was like a puzzle. It's like, you know, if I had to use a puzzle analogy, it was bits and pieces of a puzzle where you can get oh okay well i can I can probably see this happening, but if you put all the pieces together, then it shows you what the real story is, what the real narrative is, and what the facts really speak to okay so i think I think it's a combination of uh uh you know my lawyer being incomp the the lawyer that I had being incompetent and uh not emphasizing and not capitalizing off the the key facts and the material facts and the physical evidence that supported you know my innocence. But he also was relying on the investigation that the, the Marquee police did instead of conducting his own investigation into the case, into the faction, into the witnesses. You know what I mean? So.
0: OK, sure. Yeah, no, you're doing a really good job of explaining all this background. Let's let's talk to Lacey now. Lacey, um, w- when did you become involved with with Danny's case and and when did you first meet?
4: So, um, Danny's niece, Yazzie, was my favorite student when I worked at the Milwaukee Public School system through the We Indians Program, and her and I had been working for some years together and um, would help volunteer for some orga- for some events that I was leading and one day he wrote me a card. Um, thanking me for being a positive Native role model to his niece and his family and his other nieces and nephews. And and I was like, okay, I looked up this case and saw it was homicide. I was like, oh boy, you know, I didn't really want to get involved, but I appreciated the gesture. And um, he had called and he was saying that he needed someone to recreate the crime scene diagram. And at the time, I was well-versed in Microsoft Visio, the program, and I was like, well, send it to me. You know, it's a Native person. I know his whole family. Let me see what I can do to help. And when I got to analyzing the the measurements and the details of the crime scene diagram that had been presented to the jury, I realized how inaccurate their diagram was, and I, I recreated it based off the measurements. That were taken. And from then, I, I saw that he was innocent. And I just couldn't believe the injustice. I couldn't believe that they intentionally did that to somebody. And then knowing that the jury heavily relied on that diagram during deliberation, um, you know, it really just hit my heart. And from then, I was hooked. And um, I also thought, okay, you can prove your innocence. You have. You have reports from an expert saying that it was physically impossible for him to have shot the person. It was, um, the state's theory was physically impossible. Um, So you can prove your innocence like he'll be out soon, you know, is what I thought. And um, after all these years of fighting in the Milwaukee court system, the Wisconsin court system, that they don't, I've learned that they don't really care about the truth or care about um, carrying out justice. Uh, in fact, they did the opposite, and they fought harder. Once we started bringing up the innocence and the insufficiency of evidence claim and proving that the physical evidence proved as innocent, the harder they fought back. So by that time, I was already hooked. And then in the process of all that, our relationship um, went from helping to Friendly to um, romantic, and and it just grew from there naturally.
0: Okay, so you you got hooked in more ways than one. <laughs> Originally, it was it was the the intrigue of of this case and and what you could do to help. And and here you created this diagram using Microsoft Visio, and it turns out that just by your your work from like a technical perspective. Um, you were able to discredit the state's evidence, of the diagram that they used. And had you, I mean, you you said you had experience using Microsoft Visio, but had you ever done anything like recreating a crime scene like that? Was that, did you have any experience doing that at all?
4: Absolutely not. My experience of um, using Microsoft Visio was creating um, organization charts, you know, within jobs and um and chain of commands and things like that. It was never anything like this.
0: Okay. So you and Danny, in the process of this, you, you fall in love. And did um, you guys ever watch that show Love After Lockup? I, <laughs> I've seen it a few times on television. I keep thinking of this, but it's Native style. Love After Lockup yeah. Native. That's you guys.
4: I did. And my friends were like, you need to be on that show. And I'm like, oh, absolutely not. Like our story is so much deeper and more complex. Like, there's a big difference in fighting when you're innocent and in prison and for somebody doing time for a crime they did commit. It is way, way different. And, like, yeah, I watched the show. I'm like, oh, oh, no. I just could not.
0: (laughs) So when did you and Danny meet for the first time in person?
4: Uh, I think it was... May or uh, June of 2013. So yeah, you, in Waupun prison, I was on crutches, and I went and saw him, and and then it just blossomed from there.
0: So you spent well, like almost eight years. The the, the relationship your relationship is what like almost ten years old, but the, but most of it has been spent while Danny was behind bars. So what was that like for? for you to be in love with a man that, that was behind bars for all those years?
4: It was very, very difficult. And um, I never would have anticipated being in a relationship with somebody incarcerated. That is not a, That was not a goal. That was not the purpose of anything. But there were several times throughout this battle where we were really close and we thought he would be getting out. Like in 2015, or 14 to 15, when we were in talks with the DA, like we really thought he was going to be out. Then when we were in the court of appeals of Wisconsin, that decision came out um, right around Christmas time of 2018. We thought he was getting out then, you know, so there were many periods throughout that, you know, our hopes were really high. We really thought he was going to get out because the facts were on our side, the facts were on our side and the law was on our side. So You know, you think, okay, they're going to finally do right. They're going to finally follow their law. They're going to finally look at the the physical evidence, but they just did not. And it wasn't until we got out of the Wisconsin courts and into the federal courts where they finally looked at everything unbiasedly and and for what it was. And um, the reason that he was released due, due to the shackling issue, that was our least talked about issue, like we focused on the physical evidence and the misconduct that the prosecutor did and, and all the other things that were going on in this case, we didn't think about the shackling thing, you okay. know?
0: yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up Lacey, because let let's uh, Danny, could you explain more so the 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 judge in the first trial um they chose to shackle you while giving testimony, and the jury saw that and that was a big part of the appeal later what what why were you shackled to begin with what was behind that
3: uh so during the trial it was it was things that were just it was just it was just it was so blatant as far as uh you know the misconduct and and just just the stuff that was going on between um the judge the district attorney um the the the, the the person that was supposed to be representing me, my so-called lawyer, and also the deputies in that courtroom. So it, it was a few instances where I spoke up on my own behalf. And I was essentially telling the judge, like, you know, you know, I know what's going on here. This ain't law. This ain't according to the facts. This shouldn't be happening. And obviously, by me speaking up the way I spoke up, they took that as if I posed a threat to them, or it was threatening, or whatever the case may be. Okay. So at this
0: point, okay. I'm I'm sorry, Danny. So is it safe to say that you, you raised your voice and you were you were pretty impassioned in the way you spoke?
3: Uh, yeah, I guess you can say that. But I, it was real. It was it was more emotional because I seen what was going on. It was it was happening to me. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, I was. I I, know, I, was, I
0: understand. I thinking, I, I, tr- I fully understand. What it, I'm just curious. I mean because i i mean the logic there with the court was that they there was a threat that you presented some kind of a threat do you think that was accurate do you think you presented a threat that warranted you to be shackled like that during
3: testimony no nah, see see this that's another thing too so during the trial when when you when you're on trial Milwaukee County in particular i don't know about any other county i've i've never been on trial for a murder i didn't commit in any other county but i'm saying even even when you're when you're on trial for a murder you didn't commit they still shackle you to the floor, but these particular shackles are not visible to the jury. Okay. So it was not, it was, it, it, even, even if they felt like I was speaking up on my own behalf in a threatening manner or my body language was threatening, I, was, I, I posed no threat to nobody in the courtroom because I couldn't move anyway.
0: Okay. So, Danny, why so do you the, think your shackles were? I mean, do you think that was intentional that they exposed your shackles? Do you think that was just somebody made a mistake and they, they forgot to cover them up?
3: No, no, it wasn't a mistake because those shackles that's not that's not that's not exposed to the jury. Those are those are just that. The jury don't see those you're not prejudiced by. Them. It was the additional shackles that the jury felt like I needed to be that needed to be put on me and the, the 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 additional shackles were the visible shackles and those were the shackles that the jury seen. So now I had two I had two different sets of shackles on me. I had a stun belt on my arm and this was all visible in, t- in front of the jury while the DA was saying that I was some mad guy or some mad man that was running around doing whatever he said I was doing. So I was I was inherently prejudiced by that just in and of itself. The so jury sees really- you
0: there, you're shackled up, you've got this the stun device. I mean, yeah, they're freaking out, right? They're like totally they're totally yeah, swayed by it. this.
3: Yeah, he did it. So so you got to think, they got that visual of me while the prosecutor is saying that I'm a bad guy, I'm this, I'm that, I did this, I did that, and then they turn around and look at me and I'm shackled up like Hannibal Lecter, that's going to have some type of effect on any human mind or any human being. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, that, yeah, that was that right there. So that's that's how that transpired. The, the shackles, it was two different sets of shackles. The one that's not visible to the jury, that all all defendants that sit in a felony court have to put on their ankle, and then there was the additional ones where she felt like were warranted, and also she felt like they should be visible to the jury.
0: We are speaking right now with Danny Wilbur. He's talking about his case and being exonerated for a crime back in the early 2000s, and he's today a free man, and he's joined here with his significant other, Lacey Kinnart, and We're learning more about the background of this really, really intriguing case. Give
2: us a call if you have a question. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. With over 40,000 organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. That's why AARP brings together valuable resources to help navigate veterans' options, including no-charge veteran employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, and access to discounts. AARP is on a mission to support veterans. More at aarp.org veterans. AARP supports this program. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're listening to the story of
0: Danny Wilbur, a citizen in the United Nation of Wisconsin who fought a murder conviction while behind bars there's still time to join our conversation. If you give us a call at 1-800-996-2848, we'll be sure to get your comments on the air. If you want to ask Danny a question, if you want to ask Lacey a question, learn more about what went on in Danny's head all those years he was incarcerated. Or if you want to learn more about uh, their romantic relationship, I think they're happy to talk about that as well. But Danny, let's go back. You were talking about these shackles uh, before break and, and the way you described that that they were applied to you while giving testimony. And that ended up being a big part of your appeal. Can you tell us why those shackles um, and, and their use was a, was such a big part, and, and why you're a free man today?
3: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, if you if if, if a man's accused of murder, and then you know you see this man you know shackled up, you know, like Hannibal Lecter is like the example I give. It's also the, the example my lawyer gives. I mean, it's going to have some type of impact on you mentally. It's going to have some type of impact on you as it relates to that case or some of the things you heard. So I think that was, and it happened during closing arguments. It wasn't during testimony. It was actually when um, the prosecutor was given his side of the case.
0: Okay. Thanks so for clarifying.
3: Here, I, right. So I'm sitting here shackled up, visible shackles, in front of, with, a, with a thumb belt on my arm, in a wheelchair, and he's telling the jury that I did this, this, that and the other. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that was what ultimately got the case overturned, but the physical facts were also acknowledged by the judge because the physical you know, it was a lot of you know, I keep talking about the physical facts. It was a lot of physical facts that existed in this case from the day one, but they were never acknowledged. They were never they were never analyzed by those that they should have been analyzed by and presented you by. Okay. Which would have ultimately proved my innocence, you know.
0: Okay, so there was definitely problems in the procedures there in the courtroom during those closing arguments, as well as just a, a lot of really weak evidence uh, to begin with so holy cow and because of all that you wind up in prison for eighteen years and, and and now finally you're out and and you know congratulations to you and to Lacey and everybody else who was involved in this case and and making sure that that you know you got out of out of prison and in your home and you're a free man um what do you think? Do you think anybody can fight the system and win, uh, like you have, or are there a lot of people that are in your same situation and, and they're just not going to have these opportunities. They're not going to have these resources. They're not going to get these breaks that you've gotten.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, like, you know, that's, I mean, that's just how it is because, you know, fortunately for me, man, I'm able, I mean, I'm able to articulate myself and, um, I've always had a knack for reading. I've always had a knack for just trying to be intelligent and trying to be being smart and being a thinker. And you know, when, when I always tell brothers, when you when you're fighting when you're fighting a system, you gotta know exactly what you need to fight with. And one of the things you need to fight with is knowledge. So I always encourage that. Well yeah, unfortunately it is gonna be a lot of brothers that just, you know, that fall to the wayside because they don't have the intellectual capacity or they don't have the resources. Or just because they're uneducated, or whatever the case may be, or they don't have they don't have the money, or the social economic status. Okay. So just you know, it's 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 it's, it's just so See, for me, I didn't get involved in prison politics. You know, I didn't I didn't you know I didn't become one with the prison. I wasn't running around prison doing things that uh, uh, wasn't beneficial or advantageous to to my cause or my struggle. You okay. understand what I'm saying? But, I do, you know, Danny. I say, yeah, right. and, and
0: you spoke about knowledge, right? And, and having that knowledge at your disposal to be able to fight this case. But you also mentioned resources, right? And this this wasn't free. I mean, this cost money. How did how were you able to to pay for for all of this uh, research, for the appeals, everything else?
3: Uh, well, man, you know, it was a few like family and friends, man. You know, we did fundraisers. It was family members that you know, sold cars and, you know, did things, you know, like it was, it was just, it was support. Um, it was, it was real community oriented, uh, you know, it was, it was, it, it was, it was a lot of love, man. It was a lot of people that showed me a lot of love throughout the years. And, 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 and that's what really, you know, that's how all this was able to come to fruition. Yes, the, the, the legal expenses are, you know, almost a quarter million dollars now. And that's just what we can. That's just what we can account for. Like, I mean, we don't even have all the expenses or all the, the invoices or all the or, or all the, you know, the, the 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 receipts. You know, but yeah, it's, it's very expensive, man. And I have I, I've, I've been showed a lot of love throughout the years, man, and, and really want to count it. You know, it's been a lot of different people that have contributed to me being out in my freedom and my cause and my struggle, and I'm appreciative for that. I count I count my blessing for that every every day. So yeah, it's 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 very expensive, man. It's very expensive. I owe everybody. <laughs> I owe, <laughs> Danny, let's go back to I, I owe everybody. I, <laughs> I I actually still owe. I actually still my owe my lawyer like a lot of money.
1: You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. So it's
3: yeah, it's, it's very expensive, and you know, and and and, it, and then people. That's what they do. They try to you know they try to just deplete you or your resources and, until you just give up. Like they'll just keep fighting and fighting because they have unlimited resources. Okay. I don't have unlimited resources, you know, so it, it it's a struggle, you know.
0: Well, Danny, you were 24 years old when you went to prison, uh, 42 years old when you were released. So, I mean, you spent uh, the majority of your adult years behind bars. So, what are you doing now and and what are your plans for the future?
3: Uh, I'm doing right right now, I'm doing uh I'm doing a lot of advocacy work, you know, for guys in prison. Um I'm actually uh co founding a uh a, a non profit. It's a it's a legal advocacy service and we'll be uh appealing, you know, to the brothers and, and, and the sisters that's incarcerated that don't have resources, that don't have, you know, the legal expertise or don't have, you know, just just don't have the wherewithal in general to be able to fight a wrongful conviction or or to be able to prove their innocence. So that's 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 what I've been working on and uh it's, it's, it's real time consuming. It's, you know it's a lot going on. When I first got out of prison, even before I got out of prison, I just didn't want to deal with, with, with the law for a while because I felt like I would need a break. But ever since I've been out, that's all I've been doing. So I guess that's just my call, and it gives me purpose, man, and it's real spiritual for me too, man. It keeps my spirit, it keeps my spirit real lit too. like it keeps it you know real good, right? So that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. But you know it's a lot going on. I'm I'm in the middle of moving. Um, yes, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's it's a lot going on.
0: Um, Danny, is there any thought to to going after the state for this wrongful conviction? I mean, I mean, you talk about two hundred fifty thousand dollars of, of legal expenses that you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to pay, right? I mean, that's that was their their mistake
3: yeah yeah i mean in 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 a in the real world i mean in a perfect world, that's probably how I go where you know where they would be willing to wipe off all these legal expenses or reimburse you, and everything would be fine and dandy again, but at the end of the day, man, it's not necessarily about the money, the fact that I lost you know almost eighteen years of my life i mean no amount of money can make up for that um as far as do I plan on going against the state, yeah we're actually you know we got we got people that's been contacting you know contacting us about. Uh, potentially taking the case or being interested in the case or want to pursue um the the constitutional violations that occurred and the misconduct that occurred. So yes, it's definitely gonna be a lot of it's it's a lot of litigating going on. It's a lot of it's a lot of planning. It's a lot of brainstorming going on as far as that. So yeah, we definitely plan on pursuing something like that in the near future.
0: I wanna ask Lacey and Lacey you talked a little bit earlier about how how difficult it was dealing with the state of Wisconsin and how uh, they were just ignoring evidence and and just it, it just felt like you were fighting this huge machine uh, in terms of this um, you know just they just did not want to deal with any of this and, and acknowledge these mistakes and Lacey uh, has it made you bitter at all or, or, or less trustful of the, the criminal justice system now that you've learned and, and lived through this whole experience with Danny
4: yeah definitely and before um when i would hear people in the news that allegedly did this or allegedly did that like now my first thought is wow did they even really do it you know and when i think of people in prison my first thought is oh i wonder how many people are innocent i wonder how many people in there are overcharged over sentenced how many rights were violated like it definitely opened my eyes to how this I call it the injustice system how it really truly works and it in the general public doesn't know that I didn't know that before getting involved and I was my mind was constantly blown at at their egregiousness and and to them it was like just another day it was just another day in court and just another day of lying and denying our motions and it really did. It really opened up my eyes. So now I'm like pro defendant and pro um making sure that people's rights are honored. You know, we we all have constitutional rights and, and in Wisconsin they just have no problem violating them. And it's unfortunate.
0: Lacey for somebody listening to the show today, uh, somebody who might have a relative that's incarcerated, and and they're listening now and they're thinking, "Geez, you know, uh, I've got a relative in a, in a similar situation," and um, I'd sure like to 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 take some of this action. I'd sure like to to go for an appeal. I'd sure like to see one of my relatives, one of my loved ones, um, be, I, you know, with an issue or a, a previous conviction that I don't think was fair. I'd sure like to see that overturned. What kind of advice can you offer somebody like that and their families?
4: Uh, First of all, don't give up. And it's hard. It may take a long time, but just don't give up. Um, Know as much as you can about the laws pertaining to the issues in the case. Become an expert in that. Become an expert in the facts of the case. Advocate for your loved one. Um, reach out to lawyers, reach out to the news, you know, and your question earlier about um, now that he's doing all these interviews, I tried for many years to get news news places to take this story, and it just never happened, and now, now that he's finally exonerated, it is, but, you know, you have to, you just have to really make your voice heard, get on social media, get a movement going on, get, get have your friends and family share the story. Um, it's just, it's a lifestyle, you know, it's not just a, okay, I'm going to pick up this today, but not deal with it for another couple of days. It's a everyday lifestyle battle. And eventually if the facts and the law are on your side, you'll get relief. It just may take a long time, but it'll happen.
0: Danny, I asked you about a wrongful conviction and, and compensation and you know, you, you talked a little bit about what actions you're taking, but I'm also curious to know, anybody from the state has anybody ever just apologized to you for this whole incident?
3: No, no no apologies. Not at all. It took us it took us it took us almost, you know, it took us, you know, almost eighteen years to get to the hearing where they were dismissing the charges, and that hearing only took two minutes. So just think about that. It took us 20 years to get to, almost 20 years to get to this point, and it took them two minutes to dismiss the case, and it wasn't no apologies. It wasn't nothing like that. It was business as usual.
0: If somebody had given you an apology or, or gave you an apology now from the state, an official apology, would would it matter to you?
3: Uh, Well, I mean, it would have to matter to me. I mean, even if it don't matter to me, it would have to matter to me because of who I am and the person I am and the way I will feel about something like that. And I can never, you know, I just I just I just refuse to be bitter about things. You know, so if a person wants to apologize for what has happened, you know, I, I would be receptive of that, you know, whether or not it resonates with me or whether or not, you know, it will sit on my spirit to the point where I would rather I would want to give it some thought. I mean, who knows? But, yeah, no apologies were ever given. And, and I don't expect no apologies to be given.
0: Danny, you talked earlier about your spirit. That was really the guiding force that got you through all those years behind bars. And I'd like to learn more. I mean, were you able to get support tribally or any kind of cultural support? Was that offered to you? Did you have those types of resources as well to foster your spirit during that ordeal?
3: Well, no. well, Well, it was. It was, you know, it was it was native women. You know, I got native women friends. I got native, you know, it was it was friends of mine that were, you know, like I can, you know, we can have those type of conversations, and you know, we can connect like that. Or and they can send me material and certain things for me to read, and certain things for me to talk, you know, for 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 me to think about, or you know, certain things that will foster my spirit, or just give me, you know, give me good spirit in general. But no, I, I didn't receive no, you know, no, I didn't receive no, you know, no support from my tribe or, you know, you know, nothing like that during this time. You know, they did. They still haven't reached out to me to this day. It was, it was funny, but um, no, I haven't received no, no no, support or nothing from my tribe or nothing like that. It was, it was you know, it was basically, you know, just okay. people I knew. And then sometimes you hear about...
0: In, in prisons, you know, there are sweat lodges and serum opportunities for ceremonies and things like that. Were you able to take advantage of any of those those yeah, types yeah, of opportunities?
3: All, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we had pipe and drum. Um we had we had sweat lodges. And uh that's you know, be, before I even, you know, really was in tune with my spirit, like they like, you know, you know, that spirituality man, that's something you gotta that's something you gotta get in tune with. That's something you gotta feel. That's something that's just gotta that's just you. So a lot of you know a lot of my years you know a lot of my you know first couple of years that I was in prison you know I, I was real bitter man I was real angry, um, you know what I'm saying I wasn't in tune with my spirit like that. So when I was really able to find myself so to speak and get in tune with that spirit and get in tune with my resiliency and um, some of some of the gifts that I was given from my ancestors and the Creator, that's when that's really when I started you know finding my way with things you know as far as what I needed to do and, and start getting more clarity as far as the path I needed to take to prove my innocence and then clear my name.
0: Well, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. And unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up now. Our hour is through. Danny and Lacey, thank you both for coming on the show today and sharing such an intriguing, such a remarkable story. And I wish you the very best moving forward. Join us again on Native America Calling tomorrow. We're continuing our series Through the Decades. We'll take a look at some pivotal Native political and pop culture moments of the
2: 1970s. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu.
3: First baby, don't know where to start? CMS program coverage
4: prenatal service. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.